I guess just a bit about me. I've been into wildlife since like day one. I count myself as very lucky that I am able to pursue my passion, doing research, and honestly, you know, loving my life. So, spoken like a true wildlifer, the charming dropterologist Riley Jackson, pronouns she, her, is a third year PhD student at the University of Arkansas in the US studying risks of pathogen transmission between bats and humans in southeastern Kenya. We caught up to discuss her research project, as well as the steps she took to live her dreams of working in wildlife research. Riley shares her advice on how you too can choose this career path and follow your passions. Welcome, Riley. Hello and welcome to It's a Wildlife podcast and blog sharing the great work being done for wildlife conservation worldwide and solving problems for ecologists by ecologists. If you're a fellow wildlifer, whether you're just starting out or you've been about the traps for a while, tune in and let's chat. You're in the right place. Well, yeah, my name is Riley Jackson. My pronouns are she, her. I am a third year PhD student at the University of Arkansas in the United States. I guess just a bit about me. I've been into wildlife since like day one. I count myself as very lucky that I'm able to pursue my passion, doing research and honestly, you know, loving my life. So amazing. Did you mind explaining a little bit about where your PhD project is at? So I am super fortunate in that I get to work with bats in Kenya, um, specifically rural southeastern Kenya, right above the Tanzania border. And we work in this area because I am part of a lab that works in the US, Finland, and in Kenya that studies disease ecology. And so I specifically work with different ecological principles about bats that might make it easy or, you know, allows for opportunities for what we call zoonotic pathogen spillover. And so my project now is looking at human wildlife conflict and how that might relate to opportunities for zoonotic pathogen spillover, but then also looking at different ecological principles like uh, roosting behavior and movement ecology of bats and what that can mean for pathogen transmission. Obviously, bats have been in the media a lot in the last couple of years because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and they've gotten a lot of bad rap unnecessarily. Bats are great reservoirs for many viruses, especially rabies virus. But, you know, they, they have been found to have evolved for millennia with coronaviruses, which is why they were implicated in the COVID-19 pandemic. Although there currently is no evidence that a bat actually gave a human this coronavirus. Where I work specifically, we are searching for different viruses. So the team that I'm a part of, they previously found Ebola virus in bats in this area. However, it's never been found anything besides bats and it's never been found in people. And so, yeah, a lot of my work is kind of, you know, understanding what sort of contacts humans and bats have that would make it easier for some of those pathogens to get into people. And this might be a silly question, but how do people usually come into contact with bats in the first place? 
And, you know, luckily in this particular area, there is actually a huge stigma against bats, mainly because they've recently started to move into human dwellings, which is, you know, kind of an unusual thing for this area. And so that on top of the fact that they're small and they're only moving around at dark, there's a huge amount of negative stigma about bats in these areas. So people largely avoid them and kind of leave them alone to do their own thing. On the flip side, there is persecution of bats in this area. There's actually a huge association between bats and like negative magic. People actually see them as messengers of what we call witch doctors. They see them as like a bad omen. And if you have a bat in your house, your house is cursed and you know, you need to do things to get rid of those bats. So it's really interesting from both an ecological and kind of an anthropological standpoint. This must be such a fascinating area for you. When you're talking about bats, is it one species in particular that you're focused on in this area? So, uh, so Kenya is one of the most uh, bat diverse countries that we have in the world. There are over 108 different species of bats currently recognized in Kenya. No way. Yeah, yeah, which is a ton. Like, I think in the U.S., we have 47. Where I work specifically in the Tisa Hills of Kenya, we have probably around 30 to 40 species. I specifically, I focus on about three different species. Two of them are what we call free-tailed bats. These guys, they are really high flyers. They have slender wings and they have tails that hang off of their body. And they frequently live with people, but also, you know, once upon a time, they did live in tree hollows uh, and caves, things like that. And then the other species that I work with is Cardiodermacore, and it's the heart-nosed bat. They're one of my personal favorites, mainly because they have these huge ears and these huge noses. And they're just absolutely fascinating how they can navigate through scrub and brush. And, you know, they can put themselves in flight from a position on the ground. Like, they're absolutely fascinating animals. Amazing. Yeah. And so you've got these high flyers. How are you collecting your data? How do you get your hands on these bats? Yeah, so for the most part, when it comes to trapping bats, some of those high flyers are really tricky. But what we do in Kenya for the most part is we identify roosts. So where these bats are hanging out during the day. And then we actually put up huge mist nets to catch these bats as soon as they are leaving their roosts. One of the other ways that we can target them is if we put nets over water because water is kind of a limited resource in this part of Kenya. And so, you know, bats drink water like many mammals. Unreal. So when you've got them in the hand, are you worried at all about these diseases and how are you finding out whether or not a bat is infected? (laughs) To be a long story short, no, I'm not usually worried. Um, I've been working with bats for about 10 years now. And so, you know, I've been bitten by hundreds of bats probably. I feel like that's a big stigma. The main worry is getting bit by a bat that has rabies. So I am vaccinated against rabies. And obviously we tell people not to handle bats because you have no idea what a bat will be carrying. And oftentimes a lot of the bats that people interact with, aka those ones that are on the ground, you know, are not protected. They're out in the daylight. Those are going to be your sick bats. And so, you know, there's a high proportion of the bats that the general public will interact with that might be sick, which is why we tell people don't handle bats unless you know what you're doing. In terms of, you know, for me, because I have been working with bats for so long, because I am vaccinated and because we are targeting, you know, bat roosts where healthy bats are likely going to be hanging out. I'm not usually too worried if I get bit. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of other diseases that bats carry, the percentage of bats that are actually going to be, you know, infected with pathogens is extremely low. 
Absolutely. And I guess you're living, breathing proof that you can work with bats sustainably for a long time and have absolutely no worries. <laughs> People that have been working with bats since like the early, you know, since the fifties or the sixties, and they're still doing this and they're still totally fine. Um, and so, you know, bats do get this really horrible stigma about being amazing reservoirs for disease. And a lot of the time is that's just because they have such a high rate of diversity. You know, bats are the second most speciose group of mammals on the planet, only behind rodents. But not only that, but they have roosts that will mix species a lot. So that kind of allows for some transfer of pathogens among species or for recombination of pathogens. You know, that's some of the reasons why they get a really bad rap for being these really horrible harbingers of disease. When in actuality, you know, there's evidence out there that they're not really that much more crazy in terms of disease incidents than other super species groups like rodents. Yeah, absolutely. And so why bats? <laughs> because they're not really the kind of animal that you encounter first when you get into wildlife. So can you tell us about that? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> They were definitely not the first species that I, or the first taxa that I worked with. The first taxa I actually worked with was birds, birds and salamanders. You know, this kind of goes to some of my education backgrounds. I started at a different university than where I ended up getting my bachelor's and master's degrees from. I started in a marine biology program out in California because that's where I'm from originally. And I just kind of realized that that program was not for me, um, mainly because there was really minimal contact between young undergrads and professors. So it was really hard to get into some of those labs to get some of that experience. So I transferred to the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, which has a great wildlife program and kind of make that dropping out of college and transferring to a new university easier on my mom. I got a position in one of our national parks here not with the National Park Service, but with an NGO that operates in the park. And I got some experience uh, mistending for birds um, when I was about 19. And so I was able to have this first amazing field season before starting my new wildlife department. And then as soon as I, you know, I kind of got to know some people and really the major message I was hearing was that you need to get experience as early as possible. Diversity of experiences with different taxa, different projects so that you are easily hireable in the future. And so going into, you know, the first couple of weeks of my undergraduate career at this new university, I was looking around for some of those opportunities. And, you know, one of the major ones that popped up was a graduate student who was looking for a technician to help her catching bats during the winter um, from case. And so luckily I had all that misnetting experience for birds that I had just gained the summer before. And so I applied and I, you know, was a great fit. And so I was able to start working with bats back in 2013, but I have currently never left. The bats stole your heart. <laughs> yes, they literally did. Like before then, like I thought bats were cool and I'd seen them here and there, but I'd really not thought that much about them, you know, trying to get some wildlife experience. And I was like, and I have been working with bats ever since. Incredible. What is it for you that you just love about them? Oh man, what is it about that? Well, so first of all, I just think they are so fascinating because of their huge range and diversity. They live everywhere in the world, except for Antarctica. And so, you know, they've been an amazing species to work with, or taxa to work with, because I have been able to, you know, work all around the U.S. I've been able to work in Belize. Um, I've been able to work in Southeast Asia and Cambodia. And now I'm able to work in Kenya. So 
They're an amazing taxa that's located all over the world. But yeah, they're all, all their different life history strategies are just so fascinating. You have bats that are major pest suppressors. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., bats can save farmers over 20 billion U.S. dollars per year in pest suppression services, which is, you know, mind-boggling to think about. And also, you know, just how much our lives are bettered by the fact that bats exist. They're also really important for pollination in different parts of the world. So in the neotropics and the afrotropics, Asia and Australia, they are major pollinators for lots of fruit trees and lots of, you know, really gorgeous endemic flowers. And then, you know, one of their other major kind of ecosystem services is seed dispersal. So a lot of bats are fruit eaters. You know, they'll be munching on a fruit and they'll fly off with the fruit or they'll be pooping it out. And they're able to take seeds really far away from the pantry. And so kind of help with seed dispersal and forest regeneration. So they just do so much for this planet and they are not recognized for it by the general public. So it's getting better, most definitely over the years, but we owe the simplicity of our lives to so many different species of wildlife, bats definitely included. So our humble bats are actually making our lives better every single day 100 <laughs> so exciting <laughs> yeah so um many scientific studies will actually use bats as a bioindicator. so that's kind of the term we use to you know something that indicates whether the biology of an area or the ecology is healthy so if you have your intact ecosystem you should have that high diversity of bats if that's normal for the area that you're working in, like tropical forests or something. So having bats around is actually a really, really good thing for humans. Yeah. Yes. Yes, 100%. Now, can we step away from the bats for a moment yeah. and talk a little bit more about your journey something that really struck me at the start of our conversation how lucky you felt at so many aspects of your life and for me as well gratitude has been a massive part of my journey in ecology did you want to talk a little bit about gratitude and how that can get you to where you want to be in the work and life space yeah 100 percent. one of the major reasons a lot of us pursue this kind of work is because we get some of that internal gratitude by people that are so passionate about wildlife just being able to do what we do there's that quote from Aldo Leopold where you know if you have an ecological education you live in a world of wounds uh, because of the state of our wildlife and our ecosystems across the world and so I think that we are so privileged and so fortunate to be able to work in a field like this to be able to have positive impacts on conserving some of those wildlife species and some of those ecosystems. That's a huge driving force for me and definitely, you know, what's gotten me here to this point. You know, unfortunately, that passion can only take us so far because a lot of people do struggle to get positions in this field, especially permanent long-term positions. But yeah, that gratitude has really carried me throughout my entire life. And hopefully, you know, when I'm finally in the market for a permanent position, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that I'll have to do with something with wildlife conservation. Absolutely. Fingers crossed, man. It's a hard world out there. <laughs> Yes, completely. You mentioned the struggle felt by a lot of people in the space of ecology, but also the struggles for the planet. There's a lot of issues that we see firsthand working in the field. Do you have any tips on how you stay positive in the face of adversity? Yep. I mean, it's hard, you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of us do find it very depressing, you know, seeing what's happening across the world 
in every respect. For me personally, oh, this is rather myopic, but honestly, like if I get too overwhelmed by the state of the world, I kind of bring back my focus to what I'm working on and to the difference that I'm making personally. And, you know, even though it's a very limited scope, it still is enough to realign my depressive episode and, you know, get back, you know, lots of things suck. But here we are in this amazing ecosystem, working with these amazing people, absolutely fabulous species, doing what we can on the ground in a localized area to help conservation. And I think that's really important to keep in mind is that there are the potential for some of these massive movements that they can grand scale, but a lot of it really starts with some of those localized movements. So, you know, starting in your backyard, starting wherever your field studies are being conducted, working in education. I think if you can narrow that focus back into what you can do to help your immediate surroundings, it makes life a lot easier for sure. Absolutely. I think that is so inspiring. And so often it's the case for me, at least, is the more you know, the more you realize how bad things can be. And you sometimes think, well, maybe ignorance was actually mildly blissful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I guess acknowledging that this is what's going on is still really important, you know, even if it's a bit of a downer to think about at times. Right? Oh, gosh. Yeah, for real, man. It's it's really depressing looking at so many of the headlines nowadays. I definitely find myself having to, you know, bring myself back in much more frequently than I used to and just be like, okay, let's take a breath. The world is not going to end. The world will persist regardless, but we're going to do what we can to make it a better place. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And you can do that in your own little way with, you know, something as niche as viruses in bats in Kenya. I love that. Yeah. Yes. I, I, like I said, think I'm so lucky to do what I'm doing. And, you know, another really important part about my position in particular is that obviously viruses are a huge thing right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so there's a lot of money for funding research about viruses and, you know, where those viruses originate uh, around the world. And so so while there's currently a lot of money, is usually a lot less money for ecological research. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I'm in this unique position that I've been really lucky to be able to use some of those funds for disease research that can also benefit ecological research that can help with conservation down the line. And so I think trying to find some of these hybrid solutions help with human health, help with environmental health. It can also impact wildlife health and wildlife conservation is going to be extremely important going forward. You know, having those multidisciplinary teams that work all together, helping wildlife conservation. Oh, that's it. You did mention just a little bit earlier, the real struggle that a lot of, especially graduates face, getting their foot in the door for this highly competitive and largely underfunded industry, which is wildlife conservation and research. From your experience, would you mind, I guess, sharing some of your best advice to help them on their way? Yeah, the major things I would definitely stress is if you're in a position to make sure you are able to get as much experience upfront as you can, preferably with a diversity of taxa and with a diversity of different projects, be it research, be it management, be it rehabilitation or education, you know, whatever have you. There's so much diversity of topics within wildlife that if you kind of get that background, understand, you know, just the breadth of the discipline, it'll really make your life easier further down the road. Understand what you're really passionate about. And by working in those kind of fields or in those kind of jobs, you get to meet people that have done what you want to do or have ideas for how you can do what you want to do. 
And so, you know, not only do those positions give you experience in the field, but they'll also help you build contacts. And so getting, you know, getting to know those people, building those contacts is incredibly important. Unfortunately, this is a very contact driven field, at least here in the U.S. And so the more contacts you have, the better. Not only that, but, you know, making sure that you are making decisions that benefit you. I know here in the U.S., we're dealing a lot right now with how many positions don't pay technicians and don't value technicians time. And so don't feel that just because a position sounds absolutely amazing, but it doesn't pay anything. Don't feel that you have to take that um, because there are people out there that will pay you for your time 100%. Same thing with like master's and PhD programs. I often hear about how many master's programs outside of science require you to pay upfront, but you know, there are thousands of research projects that need to be done by graduate students. You know, there are grants that will pay, that pay for your position so that you don't pay anything out of pocket. Usually you can't make that much money, unfortunately, but there's no reason to be paying for your degree, at least here in the U.S., for any type of graduate degree, which, you know, is definitely makes it a little bit more open to people that come from socioeconomic backgrounds that might not otherwise support working for pennies, like a lot of us have to in Wild conservation and so you know it's important to be aware of those opportunities for sure yeah you're absolutely right about that and leveling that playing field is a really important step to increasing I guess the diversity of ideas and the opportunities for lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds to get involved in this space yeah 100% I definitely think you know right now is a huge time in this field where we can make these decisions that will make this more diverse and more equitable for a variety of people to work in. And so, you know, making sure that you are a part of that decision-making process, you know, to make it better for everyone. Also that you are supporting your fellow young professionals in the field. I think those are really good ways to make sure that we can make this discipline the best that it can be. That's it. I think now is the time when the conversations are being had, not just for how we can help wildlife, but also for how we can help the workers who work for wildlife as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's such a big thing too, is that like, not only is it important to have, you know, these solutions for people that are working with wildlife, but so much of wildlife conservation requires working with people that live in wildlife habitats, right? And a solid number of previous policies often would value wildlife conservation over the livelihood of local people. And so hopefully people are becoming increasingly aware that you can't really conserve wildlife unless you can help people first. 100%. Yeah. You have to look after everybody, not be species selective. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Now, Riley, your work sounds absolutely fascinating. If people were interested in finding out more about it or following your adventures with bats, where could they go? So my Instagram is at coolkinkajuice. I've never worked with King Jews. I have seen them in the wild, but that was just, I liked the alliteration of that name back in 2013 when I first made my Instagram. Love it. And then you can find me or reach out to me on Facebook as Riley Jackson. My lab also has a website if you're interested in disease ecology or, you know, potentially pursuing a master's or PhD project, www.diseaseecology.org based at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, Arkansas in the U.S. So exciting. And of course, we'll provide links to all of those down in the show notes. (laughs) 
Riley, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing not just your story, but about the mysterious lives of bats and how they're making our world a better place. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, I love any chance I get to talk about wildlife, talk about bats, especially bring more people into the field because we all know that it takes an army to get some of these things done. So if we can inspire more people to follow us, then that would be great. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for another episode of It's a Wildlife. If you've been inspired by our discussion or have something to share, please get in touch, leave us a review or share the love with your network. We'll chat soon.